Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. And uh, welcome to it. If you're new here, thanks for coming. I can get you up to speed on stuff. I've been doing this over a decade. There's like 1,100. There's a lot of episodes. You can get a lot of the uh, back catalog at uh, Stitcher Premium. The most recent 50 are always available. The one I did with uh, President Barack Obama uh, is Evergreen. That's from 2015. And, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of different kinds of people, all different kinds, full range of entertainment types and presidents. Uh, I've been going through a hard time myself. If you're just joining us for the first time, it's uh, hard for me to focus on the world, which is horrible. Uh, with some glimmers of hope, but not enough <laughs> for my liking. But I also have some personal uh, personal issues that are happening as we speak. Uh, I don't want to go rehash all of that, but I'll probably jump in. I'll probably jump in, but I don't want to be rude. How are you guys? You all right? Before I get lost in my ramblings, today on the show uh, is Janelle Monet. Yes. You never thought that would happen, did you? I Did you assume that I would talk to Janelle Monet? I didn't. She's a Grammy-nominated recording artist with best-selling albums, Arc Android, The Electric Lady, and Dirty Computer. She's also in the movies Hidden Figures, Moonlight, and the upcoming thriller Antebellum, also in the TV show uh, Homecoming this season, which I watched. I've watched many of these things. I've listened to her music. But she'll be here, so that's exciting. What's happening? When was the last time I talked to you? What day is today? Monday? Uh, yeah. I Are you okay? I mean, are you hanging in? I know it's getting... I know some people that are kind of coming unhinged. I'm sure that many of you know people that are coming unhinged. It's been a long time. A lot of people without work for a long time. A lot of uh, insecurity, instability. Um, nowhere to really look to get, uh, to get uh, that sort of reassurance that things are going to be okay with the fucking world, with the country, with civilization. Is civilization going to make it? Or are we going to just digress into some barbaric shit show? I don't fucking know. All I know is that I don't know if even if you want to leave this country, you're going to be able to because now we're the fucking dummies. Now, somehow or another, inside three and a half years or so, this president has... Uh, brought this country so low that other countries think we're fucking dangerous dummies. We, I'm sure they always thought we were dangerous, but now we're probably not even going to be able to travel because the biggest country with supposedly the most resources and the uh, you know greatest scientists and whatnot, the great America, uh, is now a viral shit show that uh, people aren't going to want Americans in their countries. Because uh, we have no national leadership or protocol on the front of uh, the biggest pandemic probably ever, right? Look, I don't want to bum you out, but uh, wear your fucking mask. Listen to scientists. Don't listen to meatheads. Don't listen to personal trainers. Don't listen to your neighbor. I know everybody feels inconvenienced. It's amazing that American fortitude, Americans' ability to sacrifice... 
three months in and people are just like, fuck it. Now, either you don't care about yourself or you don't care about other people or you just think that uh, it's only hitting old people and you don't care about old people. You think it's only killing black people and you don't care about black people or you think it's not going to hit you because, uh, you, you know, you eat clean, right? How is it going to get you? You eat clean, right? You're taking your supplements. You eat clean. It's not going to get you. You don't fucking know what's going on with your genetics or why anybody... Yeah, there are some things that seem to make it more dangerous to some people than others. But, uh, you know, Mr. Clean Guy, Mr. Uh, you know, Fuck the World, Save Yourself Guy, Mr. Uh, herd Immunity Dude, Mr. Uh, just fucking uh, fuck it, man. Fuck, come get me, man. Come get me. Corona. You. Put on your fucking mask. I mean, let's not mistake who the real weak people are. The people that are so put off and so sort of uh, uncomfortable with uh, being told what to do when it serves the interest of the community and themselves. They just don't like being told what to do because they're children. So now, instead of just crying about it and doing it anyways, the bully children will now... uh, Bully the people that are taking care of themselves in the community. And that goes right up to the top, man. It goes right up to the top. So look, um, I am trying to deal with a lot of stuff. You know, I, I, I feel like some anger is coming back. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm not sure where it's going. But uh, I talked to you about Monkey, and I think I've figured out what I'm doing with Monkey. I'm going to probably, I'm probably, see, I can't even commit to it, but, you know, he's, he's distressed. I believe he's pretty close to full renal failure, drinking a lot of water, still eating, but sort of half hiding, doesn't seem comfortable, not gaining weight. And, you know, how long do we have to wait for this? I mean, his sister, when his sister went down, it was like, you know, pretty clear she was howling and and losing her mind monkey seems very spaced out sometimes whimpering still out and about but not really taking the affection much and uh, i think i'm going to take him in tomorrow i think i've made my peace with that i think i'm going to take him to the vet i know that um some people recommend that uh you know you have somebody come to the house to put the cat down um I guess in my mind, I guess I want to be in a little denial. I want to put him in the box, take him to the vet that I know, have the vet tell me it's time. I guess that's what I'm looking for because I did that with LaFonda too. I, I, I don't know. I could have a stranger vet, a strange vet come over and we could do it at the house and he could be comfortable in this house and then I have to give him to them and they take him away. And what then? What happened? I don't know. I, I think I want to go to the vet and be told that it's time. And then uh, hopefully... Like, I thought I was going to have to do it over the weekend, but I think he's going to make it till tomorrow. I think my vet will let me be there uh, to hold him when they do it. Now, the reason why I have some sort of weird right in this moment, I don't fucking know if it's going to last, but uh, right in this moment, I have uh, some sort of um, acceptance of it because I realize that, you know, this grieving process that's happening with my uh girlfriend lynn who uh died um on the 16th of may and i didn't know she was dying i knew she was sick but i didn't know she was that sick and that kind of haunts me and i think that this process with monkey you know sitting there with this cat and realizing how long i've been with him and knowing that you know compartmentalizing trying to realize it's just separate from what happened this doesn't mean the tragedies are stacking up on you yet they are this isn't a tragedy when a 16 year old cat you know starts to have failing kidneys it's not like oh my god that's crazy no it's what happens but i don't know i guess i just don't think about that shit i don't think about a lot of things you know when i get into it you know when i got these cats i didn't think like this is going to suck on the back end here but it does but I sat with him and I cried a bit and I told him, you know, what was up and I, you know, and 
I'm going to miss the cat, but on some level, I don't know if it's transference or it's just what it is. But I, I've had this whole process. I've been thinking Monkey's going to die for, for months, maybe even a year, at least since his sister died. So I've kind of gotten myself around, you know, wrapped my brain around it. I've begun the grieving process. I have a certain amount of acceptance. I know it's not unusual. It's still fucking sad. But, you know, I spent as much time as fucking humanly possible because all I got is time right now. Even when Lim was alive, I would get up in the morning and be like, is Monkey okay? Is Monkey okay? Well, now Monkey's not okay, but I think I'm finally ready. I think he's ready. I think we'll enter this together and, uh, you know, do it with a certain amount of acceptance. But I guess what I'm saying is that I've been able to have the experience of letting go with the um, the animal and his sickness and his age and it's appropriate and I didn't get that um, with Lynn but I do feel I, I feel happy to have uh, been able to uh, you know be there for the fucking cat and you know aside from that the, the other stuff just you know I get up man I don't know where you're at with how you feel about your life, you know, obviously I'm looking at mine through this grief portal, this window, but I've got enough, I get up, man, you know, it's like I get up, you know, sometimes I'll run through some suicidal ideations just to make myself comfortable, then I'll get up, sometimes I'll fucking, you know, pray a little bit just because I want to humble myself and feel, you know, connected to something, that's the biggest problem, really is that when my heart kind of wants to reach out to something, there's just no, and, and when you don't have a God, there's no place for it to land. You know, you're not, you're not going to look outside. I can sit on my porch and feel a certain amount of peace, but uh, you know, there's not a lot of hope anywhere. And I don't know where I find faith, but I, you know, I find it in a present. I'm scared about a lot of things. I, re- I realize life is fragile. I realize that anything can happen. That's for fucking sure. But I get up and I fucking make my bed, I exercise, I shower, I comb my hair, I put on pants and I do a day. That's what I do. And now I'm alone doing it. So there's a nag, there's a void, there's a a kind of like um, a humming pit that uh, I try to step around that I try not to fall into. I'm looking for some way to traverse it. But I think you just have to, I I think I just have to realize, like, there's the humming pit. Do not fall into the humming pit. So I don't. I eat, I cook things, have some melon. Have some melon, will you? So, okay, so this is exciting for me because, like, sometimes when I do this show... You know, I get opportunities to talk to people that I wouldn't think that I would talk to. And I knew who Janelle Monet was. And I've always, I've been impressed with the very little I know of her, which is, you know, specifically the movie work. And I recently watched Homecoming because I interviewed Chris Cooper and she's on that too. And she's great. But then I saw her at the, in, you know, do the opening number at the Oscars and I was blown away. I'm like, what the fuck is this amount of talent coming through one person? But I didn't know a lot about her. So then I got an opportunity to talk to her. Then I got to dig in. So like sometimes when I have a guest, I'm like, all right, let's let me try to wrap my brain around their work. So I'm listening to the records, the music, uh, trying to get a little sense of where she comes from. And uh, it's very exciting. She's a, an incredibly talented person, a gifted actor, musician, singer, uh, composer, arranger, dancer. I mean, fuck, man. It was just uh, I was nervous. I was nervous. You can see her in the new season of Homecoming, which is on Amazon Prime Video. Her next uh, film, Antebellum, is coming out uh, August 21st. And this is me uh, talking to uh, Janelle Monet. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Certainly now is the time to talk. Yeah, it's not a time to be silent. <laughs> Have you been going out into the world? Have you been doing uh, any street activism or mostly just um, talking from wherever you can, where you are? Both, a combination of both. What's it like out there on the streets? I've not been able to go out there. Well, in addition to, you know, dealing with police brutality, dealing with the murdering of, of my people at the hands of police, we've also been dealing with COVID-19. Right. Which, which disproportionately affects um, black and brown people. And um, we have been feeding uh, those who need food mm. uh, during this time. You know, we're in the middle of a financial crisis. But being here in L.A. and watching the National Guard, like riding down the street and you know, I, I the day they came with these big tanks, like we were in Afghanistan or, you know, we were in some war zone. It just felt like an alternate universe. It was very scary. It was intimidating. And it just further proved to me that it's super important that we defund the police and put that money and that energy into our healthcare systems. Yeah. Into our education systems into bettering our communities do you do you find it's and i and, and i'm like obviously a different person but it, it, do you find hope do you have hope in general i have action right like action is my love language yeah i think that it's going to take some real work and conversation had in the white community yeah i think that until I see the level of conversations around chattel slavery, around mass incarceration, around systemic racism and the systems that have negatively affected my people done by the ancestors of white people and how they're going to dismantle that, then I won't be hopeful. Until I see money put back into our communities around how we can rebuild our communities. When we tried to do it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the police, the KKK, everyone burned it down. Until yeah. I see money put into our communities, I don't have hope. All we have is action. Action, that's my love language. If you want me to be hopeful, I need to see that level of action and participation. Yes, I need to see that level of action and participation. Now, when you, like, are, are you doing... I guess the question is because a lot of the stuff you've done previous in recording and, and also in, in acting, but mostly in the in the recording, it seems like, you know, part of you, know, you were creating a, a universe, a metaphor uh, of, you know, to sort of represent disenfranchisement and to represent race. But is that time over now? Do you find that you have time to be creative? Is there a way for you to be creative outside of, of, of just specific, you know, activist action? I'm focused on being a better citizen. Mm -hmm. And I think art can meet citizenship, is, is a part of humanity, can uplift, can inspire, can encourage, comfort during these times. But I think I my energy is spent in creative ways of building with my community and how how I can how how we how I can use 
the privilege that I have as an artist, as someone who, you know, has conversations with corporations and conversations with those who are more privileged than even myself, how can I advocate for them in those spaces? How can I use that leverage, use, use, use my um, proximity to uh, finances to feed my people? How can, how can we get creative, you know, in ways of organizing? Yeah. Um, that's where I'm, I'm using my, my weight these days. Sure. Um, I have been DJing on a personal level. I've been like trying to DJ. I've been <laughs> yeah. to stay sane, but I wish that my work wasn't as relevant as, as it is. I mean, I think work that I've done almost a decade ago from my yeah. previous albums, um, these are songs that I'm still performing. These are songs that still ring true to our times. And, 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 and I wish that wasn't the case. I wish that we were not, you know, in a, in a space where uh, we have to scream black lives matter, that we have to be excited about, you know, on a federal level, they're not going to discriminate against in workspaces, uh, the LGBTQIA plus communities like you, this just happened today. I know that shouldn't be uh, a victory. It should just be, yeah, you know, it be what it is. Yeah, it should just be. Why are we having those conversations? And so that 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 has taken up a lot of my mental real estate um, right now, and and trying to creatively figure out ways to get this administration and this current um, president out of office. Uh, yeah, please. Yeah, th this this has to change. All of what's going on in the police uh, force. Uh, what's going on on the streets, the killing of, of, of black people, it's all connected, you know, sure, to our absolutely. To, to the position of power right now. Now, when you say, you know, you look back at the, the work you did like a decade ago, you know, in terms of those songs still being relevant, I mean, that was, so that was always the vision. I mean, you knew what was going on then and and you're sad that we haven't moved past that, but but doesn't it make you at least satisfied on some level that those songs still uh, are relevant and that they can still mean something to people? Sure, if they can comfort, if they can be a reminder of how much work we need to do and how how far we have not come, yeah, uh, then yes, then so be it. And when you were like when you were starting out, when you were starting to put together your vision, I mean. Who were the artists that most guided the way? Stevie Wonder. Yeah. For sure. Uh-huh. Um, Prince, for sure. And you got to work with him, right? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've worked with both of them in, in, in different ways. I did. Oh, yeah? What'd you do with Stevie? I have performed on stage with him uh -huh. uh, quite a few times. And he was on my last album. He has a uh, uh, an interlude called Stevie's Dream on Dirty Computer. Uh, and with Prince, Prince was on um, my second album, The Electric Lady. And, you know, both of them are mentors and just family. When you think about mentors like that, I mean, what was it like w you grew up in in Kansas City? Where'd yeah, you Kansas City, Kansas. And mm -hmm. I can't even I don't like I don't even know what Kansas is like. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, um, it's like a lot of things. Uh -huh. you know? I mean. Do you ever go back? Do you have people there still? I do. My my grandmother had twelve kids, and oh, she see. migrated from um, Aberdeen, Mississippi, to Kansas City, Kansas. And my mom was the baby of those kids. And uh, I have over fifty. No, I have not over. I have exactly fifty five zero first cousins. Oh so I my grew god! Up in a very large family. Yeah. Um, you know, we still talk, and we're close. And I go back like maybe once or twice a year. Yeah. Um, to visit. Uh, but yeah, it's not like the Wizard of Oz. For sure. <laughs> no, I, I know uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of lot, lot, lot of things that are that are affecting uh, black people in that community. And I hope to continue to work with organizers there and foundations and organizations uh, to help to help better to help better Kansas, you know, to sure. To, when you were like, so how many kids in your family? How many siblings do I have? Yeah. I have two. Yeah. yeah I have two sisters. Younger, older? I'm the oldest. Do they work with you? No, they have completely different lives. Oh, that's... Like, 
probably nice. Very community. Yeah, but community oriented. You know, I come from my parents were essential workers and we all come from that. So they're they're working in on the community and for advocating for our communities in different ways. Yeah. And how did you like how did you get started in, you know, finding your your sort of talents? I mean, when you were a kid, I mean, how did it start for you that you knew you wanted to to sing or or present yourself that way? You know, you know, kids know they may not be able to articulate it. Yeah. Because our vocabulary is constantly developing. But kids know who they are, who they're attracted to. Yeah. um, What they want to do very early on. And I think what keeps that dream or that purpose alive is the people around you. They can either discourage you or they can inspire you. They can be the wind under your wings. Yeah. And I fortunately was born into a family that really was the wind underneath my wings. They made me feel like I could do anything when it when it came to music, when it came to acting. They were at every talent showcase. They were in the living rooms, you know, egging me on when I had when I wanted to sing um, uh, a song or had a song in my heart. Like when I was busting out singing songs in church. Uh, yeah. And scored it to the to the children's church. Yeah, I didn't get whooped. They laughed with me about it. You know. Yeah. So I think that a lot of who I am, I owe to my family. There just seems to be something like you mix a lot of different styles, and it, it's kind of amazing the, the theatrics of it. But psychedelic, funk, soul, and and then there's sort of a, an almost Broadway feeling to things. There's the you know the time travel element, alter egos. It's just like. I, like I, I guess I'm trying to find out when you were a kid. I mean, what was the first portal to this world that you were going to invent for yourself? Was it? Did you like musicals? I mean, what made you sort of find a doorway into this alternate universe? I did. I love musicals. I mean, I love because I am from Kansas. I did watch The Wizard of Oz. Right. Julie Garland. Julie Garland was. Um, <laughs> was such a, a cinema hero to me because yeah. she sang and she acted. I also um, used to read a lot of books. I used to read uh, the Goosebumps series mm-hmm. and photosynthesis inspired a lot. Of, photosynthesis? Of yes, the concept of plants. Yeah, that, that feed on the sun. That Yes, that feed on the sun. And um, I remember writing early on, a short story around plants and aliens working together to snatch humans. Like the plants would be spying on in the living rooms or they were in the living rooms or kitchens or bedrooms. They would spy on human life and they would be in connection with, with the aliens. And then they took everybody except for me for some odd reason, because I should have been (laughs) the first to want to go because I love artificial intelligence and I love the concept of the unknown and aliens and all of that. And so I think it was just my love of the unknown, you know, watching um, Alfred Hitchcock with my grandmother when she used to babysit me. We used to watch The Twilight Zone a lot. Um, I was always in love with science fiction. And I dreamt of a world, of my world, consisting of being able to explore those themes in science fiction and be able to sing and write original music. And that was just something that I loved doing, you know, at an early age. Right. So it was just a, a like a, a fun thing. Yeah. And it kind of freed fun until the business. That's right. Side of it comes. Yeah. Everything is fun. Everything is so beautiful and free. And until, you know, you start getting non-creatives involved. Well, like it seems to me that like science fiction would provide like because I'm not a science fiction guy, but I'm definitely a music guy. But like the people that I know that enjoy science fiction, it's a very sort of um it's it's a it's a very kind of um, elaborate escape that there's all these different avenues that you mm-hmm. can take to sort of mm-hmm. build these to be part of these other worlds with possibilities and a lot of them are pretty hopeful really. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think what what I I'm attracted to is possibility mm-hmm. and what can be. You know, Afrofuturism is is a, is is you know goes hand in hand with sci-fi, but it's seen through the lens through the black lens. And would that would that be like Afrofuturism? Would that be like Sun Ra, George Clinton, Funkadelic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And all of them, all of that music is like you go outside of what people 
see you as. Yeah. You know, create the world that you want people to see you in. You create the characters yeah. that you want people to associate you with. You create the world um, that 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 you thrive in, and and that's and that's really what my motivation has been. And there's a lot of good, like the fucking. There's a lot of good comedy in some of that too. It is. I mean, I think humor is is a, a, a good way to deal with you know pain and trauma, and and most times that's what we that's what we use as a coping mechanism. Yeah, for sure. Now, can you tell me, like, you know, when you started to conceive of the first couple records, like, what was the 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 sort of the basis of the the kind of Metropolis concept? Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Sure. Yeah. Uh, of that that particular project and it was the haves because there's a constant battle between the haves and the have-nots yeah you know work the working class um and the rich privileged and there was a quote in there that said uh the the mediator between the hands and the mind is the heart and i said that's what i want to represent the heart. I want to represent the heart. I want my music to represent the heart. I want to. I want my music to represent that bridge that brings people together. Um, I want. I want. I want what I represent uh, to be a magnet um, for for those who are seeking self acceptance, for those who are seeking community, for those who um, are choosing their freedom over their fears and choosing like e- e- their own the freedom of, of, of pursuing their own identity, whatever that may be. Sure. Absolutely. If it's rooted in love, if it's rooted in evolution and teachings of, of what it means to um, exist, if it's rooted in those things, yeah. then I'm always, I'm always going to be an advocate for it. So that, that whole concept, like, cause it's hard for me to, to put it all together, but the Metropolis concept sort of moves through what, two or three records, two or three albums that you did. Yeah. Yeah, I started off wanting to do suites, which are yeah. kind of like EPs, you yeah. know, like maybe yeah. five or six songs. And I did. I released that as a five or six song. And then I did uh, The Arc Android, which was a double suite, yeah. um, suites two and three. And um, I forget which suite I'm on now, but we're going to continue it. It just <laughs> depends on where, where my spirit is. Um, we have other, you know, uh, exciting things with those projects because people are now looking at at them as like oh wow this could be a film or this could be you know a graphic novel and so we're we're exploring those those avenues now so you have other people that are creative minds that that are sort of like why not build this out let's make a character let's ha- yeah have a movie well, that was always always the intention i mean if you come to my shows that that performance you can tell yeah that it's it's always it's not about just releasing you know, a compilation of, of music or just songs. No, right. these are worlds. This is world building. And a lot of a lot of our heroes from David Bowie, you know, who sure. was new Ziggy, Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which Mars was just like one of my favorite albums um, from him. And he was also able to act and he was, you know, he was just an idea, you know, that was always constantly trying to realize itself and to speak. And that that that's that's what that's what it, has encouraged me you know people have come before me and they've done concept albums and they've they've created worlds and um you know when you go see them live and when you listen to it you're just like oh this is bigger than just an album you know this is this is a world and that and and like them uh i want to i want to continue to create that it's interesting though because like you know like i haven't seen you live in concert and i've watched some of the videos but even though that you choose these these performances and these worlds and these concepts it's 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 you're you're a type of performer that there there's something uh, raw that always seems to come through. I always seem to feel like there's a real uh, human in there and a real humanity to it. Like even when like just watching the way you took over the Oscars that night, there was such a a presence to it all that the the sort of rawness of it, whatever you were doing in that moment, you know, made the entire undertaking look ridiculous to me. <laughs> like your presence made the Oscars uh, look small. Oh my goodness! Don't say that. <laughs> Don't say that because you'll have some people uh, upset with you about that one. You but know, you know what I'm saying? They, that somehow or another, even though you create these, um, 
like the the alter egos and whatnot. There's something about what, what you're talking about that sort of love or that authenticity that you mm-hmm. managed to come through. And I don't I don't know that I always saw that with Bowie. You know what I mean? I thought mm-hmm. when Bowie got lost in a thing, he was lost in a thing to the point where you know at the end of it all, you, you don't really get a sense that you knew who that guy was at all. And that's part of his beautiful mystique. But I feel like you know you seem to shine through. Uh, you don't seem to be hiding really. Mm. Are you? Thank you. I mean, I think we all are. You know, yeah. I think that we go through trauma. You know, we go through unpacking that trauma as, as kids. Um, like what? Like what was your particular thing that you had to unpack? Well, my dad was in and out of prison, for instance. Yeah. And he's not in prison anymore. Uh, he was he was also a victim of the system. I mean, he, he had a drug addiction problem. Yeah. But instead of getting him rehab, they put him in jail. Right. And that's just something that we have to talk about. We have to talk about mass incarceration. We have to talk about mental health. Sure. Um, and my and and my dad wrote a book, and he uh, is you know sober now. He's amazing. We're best friends. But growing up, he was in and out of my life, and mm-hmm. so there would be moments where I would think he was coming to pick me up, and he just wouldn't show up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because he didn't love me, but back then that's what I thought. Right, of course. I didn't. Yeah. Re- I didn't realize that his addiction was was his sickness was making him uh, absent from my life, and so that spilled over into different m- moments of my life. Like I remember, I used to put on parties. We I would throw parties with my friends in high school, and we would just make money doing that. Yeah, and it was so bad that I would my abandonment issues were so bad that I thought that nobody was going to come to the party, so I would hide in the bathroom. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't come out until uh, they were like, OK, more people are here because I just the feeling of people abandoning me was just so hurtful. You never wanted that pain. And I think it has also spilled over. And I didn't realize this until really like a couple of few years ago that it was spilling over into me as an artist. Like, let's just say, you know, if, if there were certain things that I want to talk about in my music, I won't name them now. But if I wanted to talk about them. I'd be like, man, oh, if I say this, what if people don't love me anymore? Yeah, yeah. What if they leave? What if they go away? And up until, you know, me really being extra vocal about uh, being queer, I would always talk about it in my music, but I never wanted to talk about it in interviews because I had to have certain conversations with people that I knew loved me, but also um, were homophobic. Mm. And and Like friends and family? Friends and family, yeah. you know, I knew yeah. they loved me, but to look at me in that way, I was like, man, they might not love me the same. And so I had to really have these deep conversations before I put out Dirty Computer, before I really started to 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 be more vocal about my sexuality, because I just I had I had this fear of abandonment. So I know that I wasn't alone in that, and that's what pushed me to go even harder. Right. Uh, in, in, in who I was, because I was like, there are a lot of other, you know, Baptists um, raised people in small towns and communities who are fearful. And there are also people who can't talk about who they are because they could be ostracized or financially cut off or killed, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're still dealing with these things and, I I know firsthand what it feels like to 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 be misunderstood or or to um, have to have that fear of if I wake up tomorrow after saying this, you know, is is everything gone? Did you were you able to so when you started to have this struggle within yourself, were you able to to sort of facilitate those conversations with your family and your friends before you sort of became more public about it? Yeah, absolutely. And how did they go generally? I, I mean, my mom and like people really close to me, you know, knew and, <laughs> and they, they were fine. But you still have you still I still had to have conversations with them because when you when you come in, because it's coming in to me, I, I, I am I'm not coming out. I don't believe in the concept of coming out. You know, I believe in, you know, coming in, it's which not, means which means being included as opposed to. What, how, how do you differentiate coming out and coming in? Well, coming in for, for, for black and brown people is like, you know, 
we're inviting you in. Yeah. I'm inviting you into my space. Yeah. I'm not trying to come into your world and fit in. Right. Got it. And I felt like, and I still feel like you constantly have to teach people, you know, about yeah. what it means to, for, for them to come in to who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are some people who, you know, in my, in, in, in my family that, you know, they, they disapprove of, of me, um, loving myself and embracing everything about myself. And, and I just tell them, you know, if you don't, you don't, uh, and this always gets them. If yeah. you don't, uh, if you don't want to, you know, love me for being queer or accept me for being queer, then don't take my my gay queer money. Don't ask me for no money. How about that? <laughs> and then they're like, "Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> now we accept. We get it. <laughs> yeah, we we like queer money, <laughs> right? Because you know, listen, when you reach it, when people think." That you are just because you're close to somebody who has a lot of money, you now have a lot of money. You know, they they always think art. They feel like you, people, artists know like that there's going to be that moment where people start thinking that they are just super, 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 super rich. And sure, of course, because they're they're they related to you. Yeah. So, like, when you do you think like then? Well, that's sort of interesting that that fear of abandonment that that runs so deep in in, in emotional negligence, you know, emotional negligence with parents, you know, mm-hmm. that do you think that some of the the drive of your creativity was then to in, in sort of a an attempt at sort of self parenting, you mm-hmm. created these other worlds and these yeah. other places where you could be safe? Yes, yes, absolutely. A lot of my art was born born out of protection. And and so like the escapism of science fiction and musicals and uh, you know anything that looked fantastic was probably such a relief for your heart, you know, yeah. to be involved in that. And in fact, and and before you understood the feelings maybe about your your queerness or or or, or whatever else was going on, you could you could embrace your otherness because you had this special world because science fiction is its own special thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And in my world, androids represented black people. Androids represented members of the LGBTQIA plus communities, the untouchables, uh-huh. uh, rep- represented anybody who went against the status quo and were, you know, were in marginalized groups and their voices uh, were, were silenced. So that's what I use the android as a, um, as a parallel. Yeah, for. well, it makes sense. But also, like, it's interesting that you can have these these sweets and these concepts that you embrace and these different textures musically. But you can also, you know, kick out a pretty solid hit when you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I I always look at when people say hits and charts and things like that. For me, yeah. it's always like a hit is when it hits home first. Right. Meaning when it. When it with when you it's to who I am and where I am at that time, yeah, and also people can relate to it. Yeah, a large amount of people are relating to it. Then that's beautiful. Yeah, it's it, and and you know and nobody sounds like you. No one's doing the the type of musical integration that you're doing, like because when I was listening to some of it the, the other day, it it, I, it, it was kind of interesting to me because I couldn't really fit it into uh, like I couldn't tell you what type of music it was necessarily it was just your shit you know yeah yeah uh yeah i mean obviously you know there's nothing new under the sun yeah how we how you combine it yes how you combine it the elements that you use you know the way you say something Mm. um makes makes it makes it all yours so when did the like do you like because i was thinking about david bowie and um and some of the stuff that you do, do did you come to acting pretty naturally? I mean, where did that come from? I think being embodying certain characters in me made me feel comfortable. You know, which uh, ones? Which characters? I have lots of them. Really, just to get through it's life. Like, yes, I think we all have them. I think yeah, we all, we all are depending on the day. We don't all name them. But we have them. <laughs> exactly. And we have them. And, yeah. and you know they're coming out. Certain people trigger those characters. And right. you know, I just think we have them. Um, 
But growing up, you know, being in musicals, being an international thespian where I would go and uh, monologue to monologue competitions. You drive did? Two hours away. Mm-hmm. When, when, how old were you when you were doing that? I was, this was all through high school, through high school. So you yes. were doing theater in high school? Oh, doing, yes, high school. And, and then prior to that, I, I had a, um, I was in talent showcases. Uh, then I did um, acapella choir. And then I would do uh, after school Shakespearean programs. And I was a writer also for the Young Playwrights Roundtable uh, at the Coterie Theater in Kansas City, Missouri. How, what so, kind of was that? A, a small theater, uh, a community theater kind of thing, or? Yeah. So you, they would, they would let like like twelve students write these short stories. Oh wow! And if your short stories were good enough, then the local actors would perform them. And wow! Perform them. And so I grew up singing and acting pretty much all my life. You know. Do you remember and, what your first stories were? I, you know what? I don't, I need to, I think I, because I got kicked out of the program because my mom and I were sharing, I was sharing a car with my mom Yeah. and my mother, you know, was an essential worker and she would sometimes have to stay late to clean. And so right. if she was late picking me up from school, that meant I was late getting to the after school program. Oh. And so I was late too many times and they kicked me out. Oh. So I think I just pushed that part of my life outside uh, of my, my, oh, really? my my, my spirit and my body. It was traumatizing because <laughs> I love that program. To, and my what, heart was oh, that's too bad. And so you you focus more on the music after that? No, I went on to perform in art school in New York. I went to the American Musical and Dramatics Academy, uh, fresh out of high school. Um, and I went there and I studied musical theater. I studied acting. I studied uh, sight singing, all of the things to because I wanted to do musical theater. That, but then I said, I think it's cooler and it's better to do it on my own terms so that I'm not sounding like everybody. Yeah. You know, I love these techniques and lo- learning how to use my voice. So I took what I took from it what I needed to apply on my albums and in my life. But I did not want to sound like everybody. And I didn't like the roles that were offered on Broadway. Uh, so, you know, ne- well, that it was good that you knew that early on and that you were at yeah. least. So how did then like it? it once you knew that, once you knew you wanted to go into being a recording artist, how does that start? I moved to Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta. Yep. I wanted to be around other black creatives. Yeah. To be around other black musicians, actors, like, and then my best friend was going to school at Clark Atlanta university. And I ended up moving, um, to, to that college campus where Morehouse and Spelman, uh, and Clark exist. And, I started meeting other artists, other mm. other black creatives who were searching, who, you know, were coming from different walks of life and and had something they wanted to say, That's you know, great. and I started uh, being a part of an or, uh, uh, an organization, not organization, an arts collective. We, we formed this arts collective called Wonderland. Mm. And in Wonderland, you know, you have actors, you have musicians, you have screenwriters, you have poets you have um you have so many different types of uh, visual artists um and we just were like we want to create a different bl- blueprint yeah. you know we want we want to start an uh, an arts collective that you know does these art stunts it through music through visual art and yeah we want people to look to us in the same way that we look to paisley park yeah we were excited about this new era you know, of, of artists coming together. And, and you, and you did it. We are doing it still, you know, we, some of the still, original people from Atlanta are still with you. Yes, absolutely. And like, uh, so when you started it, it, you had people from all different realms from, from music, from visual arts, from, uh, like what, what else? Dance, everything. Dance, everything. Yeah. Public speakers, public you know, speakers. Want, yeah. 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 Actors, um, everything, everything you can think of. And then that, how did that evolve? Because that's that's your label now, isn't it? Yeah. So the art society uh, is like the tree, like the big macro idea. And then we have uh, Wonderland Records. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Wonderland Pictures. So I have a production company um, where we are producing films and television shows. Do you, do you like acting? Do I like it? Yeah. I love acting. Yeah. I love t- 
taking on characters that are different from myself and also that are in me yeah. that I'm ready to get out. You right, know? right, right. Yeah, um, yeah, I yeah. Love being a part of films like Moonlight and Hidden Figures that honor people in our communities. Yeah. Voices we hadn't seen amplified on screen before. Yeah. Uh, uh, history that teaches the rest of America about, you know, um, who we are as a people. Yeah. Uh, reminding folks that we're not monolithic, that we, from NASA to the ghettos to, you know, arts collectives to the strip clubs, we are, we are multifaceted, we are brilliant. Uh, and and there's so much nuance in us, and that and that's what I, that's what I like doing. I like bringing those characters to screen. It's great. And what's what is uh, what's Antebellum about? Antebellum is a psychological thriller. Mm. Um, I filmed that in New Orleans, and I play an author, uh, Veronica Henley. And I don't want to spoil things, but right. um, you know, I think that this film is right on time. Oh, good in terms of where we are politically mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of where we are when we're dealing with, you know, dealing with race. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's a psychological mind bender. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I watched your season of Homecoming. I watched all of it. Thank you. That uh, that's a very frightening possibility, that uh, particular problem of all of a sudden not knowing who you are, what you've done or that uh, I thought you handled that very well. Was it? Were you able to sort of really feel what that would feel like? Yes, uh, I had. To, I had to do a lot of research. I had to imagine. Really? Vision myself. What kind of research? Um, watching movies. Yeah. You know, I watched uh, some of my favorite films like Memento. You oh, know, right. where he's dealing with, with memory loss. I watched uh, the Born Identity. Oh yeah. Films. I watched uh, this film from Nicole Kidman called Before I Go to Sleep, where she wakes up every morning and doesn't know who she is or who her husband is. And so, and then also doing research on short-term, long-term memory loss, amnesia, all of that, um, because, you know, it does happen. And I didn't want to play the character one note. I didn't want her to be like disoriented the entire show, the entire season. Right. Um, because what I'm finding is, when you can't remember something, it's frustrating for you, yeah. you know, the person you're like, you're mad at yourself and trying to hide that frustration and also get answers from people that you don't know if you can trust because you don't know who did this to you. Right. And my character white wakes up in the middle of the boat. She has no idea who she, who she is or what happened to her. And she's going on, you know, this, uh, this, this hunt for self, the search for self identity. Yeah. And and she's frustrated, but she also has to get answers. She doesn't know who to trust. You know, it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough. And there's a horrible vulnerability to that. Oh, man, I can't even imagine because you you know, you naturally want to be protect yourself, but you have no fucking idea who to trust or what happened to your brain. And you just have to move through the world like that. Yeah, you you don't. It's frightening. Yeah. You know, it's Threatening. Um, I think, you know, this show, one of the reasons I signed on was what it what it what it said about um, how we treat our vets. I play a vet. Yeah. And, I'm, and Walter Cruz, who's who's played by the the incomparable uh, Stefan James. He, he also is a vet and he he's great with, with trauma. And, you know, it, it had a lot to say about how we treat our, our vets when they come from war. Uh -huh. You know, what, what kind of resources are we putting into mental health? What type of education, you know, are we giving to around what it means to, to show up for our for our vets when they're having PTSD, PTSD episodes? Mm. Mm. Um, this also talks about what it means to be a citizen over, you know, uh, a capitalist in capitalism, mm -hmm. what it means to show up for your people um and and want the health and the well-being over capitalism and it has a lot to say about corporations yep and how lots of them you know have historically and even we're seeing now they put capitalism over uh integrity over truth of course are you kidding me it's like they're 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 opening up states with the disease rampaging Absolutely. you know just because people are they're, they're playing off on people's uh, uh, we're bored, we're tired of it. 
We yeah. want to believe it's gone. And I, this is a, a, an amazing example of what we're dealing with, with not only the uh, police brutality protests, and but with COVID-19 that, you know, the people have had enough of this shit. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, and obviously, you know, I'm not a person of color, so I'm not speaking from that place, but just with, you know, people like with corporate interests and the interests of capitalism, you know, basically saying that they don't they don't care enough about people that if they die, as long as the system sustains, like right now, I don't know how you feel, but in the face of all this, I have no idea what's going to happen at all anymore. Do you? You know what? You got to think about chattel slavery. Okay. That, that, that was born out of capitalism. Right. Capitalism. Right. Right. You think about where we are now with COVID-19 and COVID-19 is killing black people disproportionately. Yes. Right. Yep. And, Black people, black and brown people are our essential workers. Mm-hmm. Like telling us to go back to work, telling people in my family to go back to work and my community to go back to work is putting them at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19 and dying from our healthcare systems mm. because of systemic racism. Yep. We don't have our health care is not the same as 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 white folks and those who are privileged in this company, in this mm-hmm. in this country. And all of this is connected. All yeah, of it's connected. And, and for me, you know, I, I, I know that you, you're saying like, I can't speak, you know, for black folks. No, you can't, but you can have conversations with other white people. Yes. You can have conversations about the why, why are we saying black lives matter as though black people are objects. Right. And not humans and subjects to be studying. We are brilliant. But why are we you in your living rooms or, you know, or why are you afraid and not specifically speaking to you? But why are white people afraid to have those conversations? And my 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 ask is that white people have these conversations because white people are the people who who can only fix this. The systemic racism. This is a conversation that white people have to have about their privilege in this this country. This is a conversation that you have to have about your ancestors who started, who started the import importing of our people mm-hmm. into this country to work and to do the labor that you For didn't nothing. Want to. Right. Nothing. Period. That why did police why did the police start? It started from slavery when they were catching other slaves, helping, working with slave yeah. owners. Right. So those conversations and that reading that needs to be you, that 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 needs to be had. That's work that that, that white people are going to have to do. And you know we're going to keep speaking out. Yeah. We're going to keep protesting. We're going to keep doing what we have been doing. We are going to continue to show up for our people. But this is not going to end unless white people really dismantle the system of white supremacy. This is not going to end until you 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 dismantle systemic racism dismantle all everything that's happening in our police in the police forces and until we really just dis- defund yeah. police you know defund them and use that money to reinvest in health care to reinvest in education reintegration into society absolutely because see we tried to do this in tulsa oklahoma black people tried to pull themselves up from their boots bootstraps the boots that we didn't come into this country having. Yeah. And that was burned down. The KKK, the police burned, bombed and burned down what we built. And until you start pouring into, into our communities, it's, 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 the talk is cheap. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can from where I am. Thank you. You're welcome. And, uh, and, and I appreciate you talking to me. And I'm a, a big fan of your talent. I think you're amazing. And uh, just please stay safe and, and keep doing what you do. I appreciate you. It was a pleasure to talk to you and, and to be able to uh, express how I'm feeling these days and, and to hear from you. And I look forward to your, you know, to, to deeper allyship from you. Okay. Yeah. You got it. Thank, Thank you, you, Janelle. So Take care. All right. That was the amazing Janelle Monet. It was nice talking to her. As I, I think you can notice. Could you notice that I was a little nervous? You can see her in the uh, newest season of Homecoming on Amazon Prime Video. Her next film, Antebellum, comes out 
on August 22nd. Of course, all her records. Uh, Arc Android, The Electric Lady, Dirty Computer. Amazing. Um, okay, so now let me uh, play some guitar. How about some uh, Angry Blues? Can we do that? Let's do that. Boomer lives. <laughs> 